Well, good morning again. I want to begin by thanking all of you who are regular here at First Baptist uh, for your prayers and your grace and uh, concern for Joyce and me. Uh, Just over a week ago, we flew back to Missouri where my mother-in-law is critically ill and Joyce is still with her. She's, uh, Joyce is doing well from her surgery recover, but her mother-in-law is in the critical care unit and, and struggling. We're not sure what the outcome will be. Joyce will be back tomorrow, uh, so we really do thank you for your prayers. As you know, uh, two weeks ago, we started the Spring Into Love series, and I'm preaching four times on the subject of love. And last, uh, two weeks ago, rather, we talked about the love of God. And I said, if you could only choose two words for God... Certainly one of those words would be love. The other word would be holy. God is holy. God is love. And we talked about God's love that is given to us, and we really focused that Sunday on some of the themes of the songs we've sung. God's love for us. God loves us unconditionally. God's love is greater than a mother's love. God has tattooed us on the palms of his hands. God knows us and loves us. And we tried to emphasize that through Scripture, through illustrations, and talked about that. Now, last Sunday, I promised you, I said, come to church. I've got a secret. There's going to be a a wonderful Sunday. Of course, I didn't know what the day would bring forth, and so we weren't here. That wasn't the secret. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, Joyce and I were looking forward to preaching together last Sunday on the subject of love and marriage, and we wanted to do some reflections on our life together. And actually, last Sunday, May 18th, was our 40th wedding anniversary. And not only that, it was my parents' 61st wedding anniversary. We were married on the same day. Go figure. Uh, And we wanted to talk a little about the thank you. Now, I have to confess, I'm really struggling with this issue because I don't even think of myself as 40 years old. And some of you are young and, you, you know, some of you old, you understand this. But so just to say that I've been married 40 years is like, wow, how did this happen? It astonishes me. But it it has happened, and it's mostly good. But Joyce and I were looking forward to talking about that, and perhaps someday in the future we can do that. Uh, So sorry that we couldn't do that. It was a lot of fun. Today I want to talk to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and then uh, again next Sunday. Now, I'm a little bit afraid of that, because when we talk about love, the best definition that I know of in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 13. It's an amazing chapter. And, in fact, it's an exquisite chapter of the Bible. And in one sense, I don't even want to say anything about it. What can you say about 1 Corinthians 13? Uh, Some of you will relate to this. Some of you may not. But um, when a newborn baby is born, some of you are very willing to hold that baby. You know, if if the mom said, here, do you want to hold her? You'd say, sure. But some of us would say, oh, no, she's too small. She's too precious. I'm not going to hold that little baby. She's just too wonderful. We're afraid. Uh, another very different kind of way of saying this is, uh, a number of years ago, my son went to uh, one of the favorite stores that I have around, Pro Italia. You've all been there, right, in, in Glendale? It's a Ducati motorcycle shop. They sell only exotic motorcycles, and Nate was interested in buying one of them, so he was there. And he had found a used one that he wanted to buy, and some guy had bought this thing, and as if it weren't expensive enough, he had totally repainted it, and then he had souped it up. So it was a, really a hot rod. The guy rolled it out, and Nate said, yeah, I'll take it for a ride. So the man made sure we were properly licensed, and he took off. And Nate came back along uh, somewhat later, and uh, his eyes were bigger saucers, and he got off this bike. You know, the ground kind of shakes when it starts up and runs. 
And the guy said, you want to ride it? And I, I wanted to, but I said, no, I think not. It's too fast. You know, I might just kill myself instantly on this thing. So I looked at it. I drooled over it. And I said, this is wonderful, but not for me. It's just too exotic. Now, in some ways, that's how I feel about coming to 1 Corinthians 13. You know, it's a huge passage, and I, what can I do? But nevertheless, the Lord has given us his word, and this passage on love is a, is a critically important passage, and it literally is a passage that can change your life, if you will understand 1 Corinthians 13. So let's start today, and we're going to talk about how does love act? What does love actually do, and what does love actually not do? And we're going to split this chapter up a bit, and as it starts out, uh, I'm not going to deal much with the first section, but if you'd like to follow along in Scripture, we have uh, Bibles in front of you. You can turn to page 175, and uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it starts out with the first three verses are actually a section. And Paul, of course, is writing this letter to the church, to a local church, and he's trying to talk to them about love. And some have suggested one reason he's talking about this is because it was not a very loving church. And we need to remember as we read this, we lift it out and we talk about it in weddings and we use it in all sorts of ways. But actually, Paul is writing to a group much like us, and he's trying to encourage them to love. Now, in this section, it's a, he's talking about gifts, and he's just spent a whole chapter talking about spiritual gifts. Some people are gifted this way, some are gifted that. Everyone is gifted. And then in the middle of this, Paul says... Uh, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, in other words, if I'm gifted with tongues, if I have other gifts, he's, and he goes on about if I have these great gifts but don't have love, here's the result. And what I like to say, that, and if you're following along in the outline, let me encourage you to do that today. Uh, what I like to say, that you, need, you and I need to remember at the outset, if you have love, if you don't have love, you're a zero, not a hero. In fact, I've put a paraphrase together like this. Without love, you're not a hero, you're only a zero. Here's my paraphrase. Even if I gave everything I owned to First Baptist Church and gave up my life serving in a third world country, but did not have love in my heart, I would be a zero and not a hero. It's good to remember that at the outset, that no matter how good you are at something, and that's great if you're good at something, we're all good at this and that, no matter how wonderful you may be, without love, in God's mind, you're nothing. That's what the Scripture says. Now, what is love? How does love act? Paul then, in verse 4, comes into this central section, and he, he lists 15, he makes 15 statements about love. Now, that would be a 15-point sermon. But we're only going to do eight of them today. And I want to talk to you about what love is not. And I couldn't decide whether to say K-N-O-T or N-O-T, but we're going to use N-O-T. Um, what love is not. And so today we're going to lift up some characteristics. And if these are a part of your life, then it's in one way it says, well, that's not a very loving way to be. So are you ready to begin? Can I have to kind of put on our tennis shoes and get through this? Uh, there's, there are eight points here. But the first thing Paul says, he starts out, love is patient, love is kind, love is not, what? Envious. Love is not envious. Now, we're using the New Revised Standard Version, 
But especially in this chapter, it's fun if you were studying this chapter to have all kinds of versions and paraphrases around you. Because it's very interesting to see how people have come at these words. And I'll be referring to the Message Bible by Eugene Peterson. And what he says, love is envy or love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. If you'll turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just a few pages back. Paul is talking to the church, and early in this letter, as he writes to the church, he writes about a problem that they have. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 1. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, interesting, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still in the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not of the flesh and you are behaving according, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? Did you catch those words jealousy, envious? Paul's writing to this church and apparently some were saying, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow this pastor, I follow that pastor, and there were factions developing, jealousies. And Paul says that that's childish of you. That's envious of you. You should not do that. When we read this, we're reminded of the the great commandment, uh, one of the Ten Commandments, where God says, thou shalt not covet. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's stuff. Don't be jealous about what someone else has. In fact, one paraphrase says, love is not possessive. On the uh, way back from Kansas City... You know, you get these cheap tickets, which means you basically fly around the country a long time before you get home. And so I flew from Kansas City to Houston, go figure. And on the way back from Houston, I got on the plane and sat down at the back. It was packed. And uh, the lady next to me said, oh, you're in trouble. I said, why? And she said, you're sitting next to two Aussies. And she had gotten on the plane, sat down, to only to learn the guy by the window was also from Australia. They didn't know each other. They're both flying home. So I was planning to read, and uh, we talked for three-plus hours as we flew from Houston to uh, L.A. It was fun. Her name was Paula. They were both 31 years old. They no, both had no clue. She actually had a few clues, but he had no clue about the Lord. He, I, you know, he asked me what I did, and we got into some conversations, and it was, it was quite fun. Paula told me she had been visiting in Alabama some friends. And we got to talking. It turns out she actually went through Anglican school, so she knew quite a bit about Scripture. Leaned on me heavily. David, you needed to be there. She's about women. She said, why does the Bible say this about women? Why does it say that? And I'm like, oh. But anyhow, we talked, and she was divorced, and she was back in Alabama visiting friends. She had been married to an American and lived here a while, made some friends. But as I talked to her about that, I said, well, why were you back here? And she said, well, I wanted to see my friends because while I was married, I couldn't see them. My husband was very controlling. Ah, one of those kinds. He was jealous. He was envious. And so each after each one of these words, I'm going to put out a question to you that you need to wrestle with. And Paul says, love is not envious. And the question is, can you cut out your need to control? You need to just let go of that need that you have to control stuff. Because love is not jealous, love is not possessive, it just doesn't have to control all the time. And so I want to encourage you in love in that way. First of all, love is not envious. Secondly, love is not boastful. 
Love is not boastful. The message says love does not strut. Literally, this means to be a windbag, to be a braggart, to call attention to oneself. Now, the next word is very similar. He says love is not boastful, love is not arrogant. And let's look at these two words together. Uh, the, love does not have a swelled head. How should we think about ourselves? How should you think about yourself? Paul's not saying if you're gifted, you should ignore your giftedness. In fact, Scripture encourages us that God has gifted us and we should excel. So he's not saying don't do well at something. And don't. It's, he's not saying bury yourself or don't admit that you do well. But he is talking about a sense of arrogance, false pride, puffing yourself up, promoting yourself self-absorbed. How should we think about ourselves? In Romans chapter 12, Paul says this. Let me read it to you. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. We should think soberly, accurately about ourselves. Now, when you think about arrogance or boastfulness or pride, uh, I was struggling, well, how do we get at this? Because the likelihood is that I may think about myself and say, well, I'm not proud, but maybe Ted, you know about Ted? You know, I may, I, you're going to tend to identify somebody else that you think is proud. But we really need to center back on ourselves. A couple of helpful examples. I was reading a book on preaching recently, and a pastor in a town had gotten the Sunday off, so he went to here to a large church in that city to hear a very well-known pastor. And when he came back to his own church, his co-worker said, well, how was pastor so-and-so? How was the sermon? And he said, well, you know, it's a great church, lots of people there, exciting to be there. Well, how was the sermon? He said, well, pastor so-and-so told three stories in the sermon, all about himself, and he was the hero in every one of them. Well, you've heard that kind of preaching, right? Boastful, arrogant. Uh, suppose you have the privilege of going to France, and you go to the Eiffel Tower, and you see it, but you're in such a hurry you can't really go up in it, so you you pass on by, and you're back home now, and you're saying, hey, I got to go to France, and it was amazing, and I saw the Eiffel Tower, and then somebody's standing there, well, I got to go to France, too, and I was there, didn't you go up in it? No, I didn't have time. Well, I went up in it, and I went to the first floor. And then another person's standing there and says, well, yeah, I was in the Eiffel Tower, but I actually went up to the second level. And there's a third person, well, you didn't go all the way to the top? I was in France, and we went all the way to the... You see where I'm going? You know, why do we need to say stuff like that? Could it be that we're just bragging? We just kind of one-upmanship. And Paul says, love is not boastful, love is not arrogant. So the question is, do you really have this need to impress people? And you know if you do, you've just got to put your words in there. You've just got to say... And haven't you been around conversations where somebody shares something and there's always a person in the group that no matter what you say, they've got to tag their story on. They've just got to tell their story. In fact, in small groups, we try to train leaders, you know, how do you manage a group when there's a person that's always got to tell their story? And Paul says, love is not boastful, love is not arrogant. So the question for us is, do I need to impress people? Do you need to impress people? Number four, what's the next not. Love is not rude. This is an interesting one. I like the Phillips paraphrase, love has good manners. If you turn back a couple of pages in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 
7, Paul is talking about marriage here, and he's talking to married couples, he's talking to singles, and we're not going to get into the whole marriage thing, but he uses this word, and that's why we're going there, because it's the same word that we translate in 1 Corinthians 13 as rude. Paul uses it as he talks to single people, and here's what he says. Verse 36, 1 Corinthians 7, 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly, that's the word, or rude, toward his fiancée, if his passions are strong, what's he talking about? If his passions are strong, then he has, um, and so it has to be, let him marry as he wishes, it's no sin. And Paul's, Paul's talking about singleness and marriage. Now the idea here, and this, is, this word that we're looking at is really not a word with sexual connotations, but the way Paul's using it is he's saying, if your passions are so strong, or if you have engaged in premarital sex, you need to get married. Because we believe the Bible teaches that sex, the sexual intimacy and sexual relationship is for the context of marriage between a husband and wife. And so Paul says, if you're behaving indecently or rudely or improperly, then get married. He uses this word in that context. Now, again, it's, it's a word that doesn't just have that kind of meaning relating to sexuality, but any kind of improper or indecent behavior. The flip side of that is good manners. How many of you had a mom that taught you good manners. Hope that you did. If you didn't, uh, maybe your dad taught you good manners or your grandma's, but do you realize the value of manners? If you know how to act decently and correctly around somebody, it's a phenomenal gift to you. In fact, here's what I wrote down. Manners are marvelous. Good manners will open doors for you. Good manners will smooth out rough roads for you. Good manners will help people to accept and appreciate you. Good manners are like oil in your engine. It keeps it from getting hot. Good manners are like oil in a frying pan. It keeps the steak from sticking. Good manners are like hot fudge on a hot fudge sundae. It sweetens the whole relationship. Good manners are marvelous. They're wonderful. And you and I, if we're going to be people of love, are not going to be rude or indecent or improper. We're going to have good manners. So let me encourage you in that. Now, what's the question? Uh, well, first of all, I, I remind you, Paul's writing to a church, and he's writing to the church because some in the church didn't have good manners. I'm trying to resist saying this. I'll say it now. It must have been a Baptist church. Jealousy, quarrels, bad manners. Now, you remember, if you go back a chapter or two, they used to have potluck suppers. Another reason it was a Baptist church. I guess all churches do that. They had the agape feast. People would come to church, and before communion, they would all have, have dinner. But the problem was, the rich folks were bringing their steaks and their exotic foods and sitting over over here with a, a mound of food on their plate, the poor people were showing up with nothing or peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and going hungry. And Paul says, how can you be a church? They were not loving. That's why he's writing this chapter to them, because there's this division from them. They're just plain rude. How can you sit there and eat like that when your sister or brother is over here hungry? And so he encourages them, don't be rude, don't be indecent, because love is not rude. So the question is, wiggle your toes if you answer yes to this. The question is, are you ever improper or indecent? <laughs> Ouch. Uh, are you ever improper or indecent? Love is never rude. Number five, 
There are eight of these. We're halfway through. Paul says, love does not insist on its own way. It isn't always me first. Um, you better be careful if you get here to church early and sit down on that couch out there because I might come and talk to you before the message and get some good information, which I did. I won't, um, I won't divulge the names, but I was talking to a couple and I asked the wife, I said, does he clean around the house? And she said, oh yeah. And so th- this couple's doing great because they're sharing the workload at home. But this uh, headline caught my eye recently. Sloppy guys create more work for their wives. And it went on to say, I'm sorry, ladies, for women, marriage means seven more hours of chores a week. Oh. I didn't get any amens from the women. Oh, me. Uh, it's, a, it's some research that was done at the University of Michigan, and uh, the guy says it's a well-known pattern, Frank Stafford, that... Uh, when women marry, their work at home goes up. When men marry, their work at home goes down. Now, among the males, do you know who does the most work at home? Single guys. Makes sense, I guess. It goes on to talk about this, some interesting statistics here. But uh, there is good news, a couple of signs of good news, ladies. It does say that men are getting better at helping out around the house. And the reality is that older men, do you think they help more or less than younger men? It's actually more. Amazing. And uh, so that was good news, too, that it seems like older guys are doing better than younger guys about helping out around the house. The Bible says love does not insist on its own way. The question is, do you have to have your own way? And here's a way to get at this. Think with me, when was the last time in a situation you wanted to do something, you wanted to have your way, you wanted this to happen, you wanted to go to that restaurant, see this movie, you, you fill in the blanks. When was the last time that you actually had a desire, but you backed off and deferred to someone else? That's the question. Can you remember when you last did that? When you actually gave up what you want for love's sake and said, no, we'll do what you want. And not only that, you gave it up and you didn't complain about it, okay? You know, don't make a big deal out of it. You don't get any credit if you start moaning and crying and being a big baby. So uh, think about it. When was the last time you deferred to someone? Love does not insist on its own way. Number six, it is not irritable. (laughs) I love this one. And one Bible says it this way. uh, It's not irritable. Love is not touchy. Now, if you've ever had kids in the back seat of your car sitting two or three across, modern day people have no idea how easy it is. You get a minivan, everybody's got their own separate chair, they can't reach each other, they're all strapped down. It didn't used to be like that. All the kids lined up on the back seat, and what happens about five minutes into the trip? He's touching me. Abigail, our three-year-old granddaughter, has already learned this. We were in the car with her recently. She's screaming her head off. Her brothers are touching her. I didn't see him touch her at all, but you know, she, he touched me. She's very touchy at times. And kids are like that in the back seat. You know a lot of adults are like that? Have to handle them with kid gloves. Be careful what you say. Don't say that around him. They're touchy. They're easily irritated. Paul says, love's not like that. When you put love in action, it doesn't fly off the handle. It's not touchy. There's a great line in the uh, poetry of W.H. Auden which goes like this. It could almost be scripture. If equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. 
That's the idea. That's the idea. Love is not irritable. So the question is, do you go off easily? Do you have a short fuse? If you do, if you say yes to that, good for you that you admitted it, but that's not love. That's not love, because love is not irritable. Well, let's go to number seven. Um, Number seven is about resentment. Love is not resentful. I really like the NIV version here because it gets it at the exact meaning. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, all of us, in some area of our life, we keep records. You may keep an, a, a bank account record, your income and expenses. You may keep a record of the mileage you drive in your car. You may keep a record of, uh, I don't know what else, you keep your workout schedule. There's all ways we keep records. Well, Paul says love doesn't keep a record uh, of the things that were done wrong to us. Probably Paul is thinking of Christ here who didn't keep a record of the wrongs done to him. What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And, and love is like that. Now, anybody who has counseled somebody that's married knows the experience of one partner coming in and saying, well, back, and they, they go back in time and they drag something up that happened not last month, but maybe 20 years ago or 10 years ago. They drag it out and they put it up there, they've kept a record, and they've not dealt with it, and it keeps coming up. Well, Paul says love doesn't do that. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Um, as I said, my wife had surgery recently. In March, she discovered, the doctor discovered, she had a cyst, and she had to have it removed. She had to have a major operation. Now, the doctor said, I don't know how long that thing has been in there, but probably a year or more. So Joyce is living her life happy as a clam, and thinking she's fine, but meanwhile, this cyst is growing. And then it begins to cause her discomfort, but she kind of, I don't know what it is, I'm just getting old or something, you know, kind of forget it and forget it. So you keep going down the road with this thing growing and causing more problems in her life, but she didn't realize what it was until the doctor said, you had a cyst. Let's get it out. Now, I wonder how many of us walk around with resentments in ourselves, grudges, bitterness, stuff we're carrying from the past, And we don't realize how it wrecks our lives. And it needs to be dealt with and taken out. And Paul says, love is not resentful. Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. Dr. Carl Menninger said, love cures people, both the ones who give it and the ones who receive it. So, question. Do you bring up past problems? Love doesn't. Love deals with reality, it forgives and it forgets and moves on. Now, one more, not. Love is not. Paul says love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. The Living Bible says it's never glad about injustice. The word is unrighteousness. Another Bible says love does not delight in evil. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Now, our culture tends to glorify evil. You've got all kinds of TV shows that make a lot of money off of the brokenness and problems of other people. When bad things happen to another person, especially somebody you don't like, do you rejoice? Are you glad somebody finally got their due? That's not loving. Because love does not delight in evil. Love acts in mercy. Love acts in delight. A question that I think is interesting here is the question, what delights you? What really makes you happy? What excites you? Psalm 37 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. What a great promise. Delight yourself in the Lord, 
and the Lord is going to give you all that you want. So how does love act? How does love not act? Today we've looked at about half of what Paul says in terms of the way love acts, and I hope you'll take this through your mind and uh, work on it. What are some of your actions? Are they loving? Are they not? Now, I'd like to ask you to do something this week. I want to put a challenge out there, and the challenge is I want you to promise that at least once you'll read through 1 Corinthians 13. How many of you will raise your hand and say, Pastor Steve, God is my witness, I'll read through this chapter this week. Great. Now I'm going to up the ante. I actually would like you to read it every day. I'm not going to ask you to commit to that, but I think that's a good challenge, to read it every day. In fact, I don't want you to read it just once every day. I want you to read it in different ways. And let me give you an example. Read it as it's written. But then, on a second reading, I would like you to use the word Jesus rather than the word love. So every place it says love, just put the word Jesus in there. Because Jesus is our best example of love. And when you come to a pronoun like uh, it, just put the word Jesus in there. So let me read a couple verses and you'll get the idea. Verse 4, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, Jesus is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. You got the idea? Okay, so you're going to read it like that. Now, that's not the last reading. The last reading should be like this. You could actually read this thing maybe like 20 or 30 times this this week. The last reading is like this. I want you to put your name in there. That's going to bring home the point. Here, I'm going to try it. Steve is patient. (laughs) Why are you laughing at me? I just got through one word. Oh, this hurts. Steve is kind. Steve is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Steve does not insist on his own way. Oh, my goodness. It's hot in here, isn't it? Steve is not irritable or resentful. Steve does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Steve bears all things. You got the idea. So how many of you are going to do that this week? You're going to try these different ways to read it. That'll be great. Okay. What I'd like to do is conclude with prayer. We need God's help if we're going to act in love. So would you stand with me? And we're going to put the prayer up on the screen. You might want to read this prayer throughout the week as well. You've got it in your notes. But let's read together to ask God to help us be more loving. Shall we read? Loving Lord God, we turn to you. You are God. You are holy. You are love. Lord God, we admit today that our knives are not always holy and we do not always act in love. Heal us and help us to live in love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is always... It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. By your grace, we will wish this week to live in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated.